Hello everyone, welcome to the Sons of Antiquity podcast. I'm your host Evan, and I'm joined in the studio by my co-host Dan. Welcome everyone, today's episode is about Rod Dreher's famous work, The Benedict Option. The Benedict Option was a 2017 book written by political and religious commentator Rod Dreher. It stands out from other Christian works in that it expresses a pessimistic view of the future of Christianity in the West. Christians are becoming a smaller sect every decade. A majority of those who profess the religion actually believe in liberal and secular values, which directly contradict the faith, or a watered-down version which has no basis in scripture or Christian history. In his book, Dreyer calls for conservative Christians of all types to regroup and form their own communities far from the modern liberal hellscape. Seattle, San Francisco, New York, we're looking at you. The Benedict Option as an idea was inspired by St. Benedict of Nursia, who traveled out into rural Italy and founded 12 monasteries in the 6th century AD, in a time when barbarian states had invaded Rome, sacked the city, and established control of territories once held by the Great Empire, in fact most of Italy at the time. Thanks to monasteries like those created by St. Benedict, Christianity, Western knowledge, and Western culture were preserved. This philosophy is briefly mentioned at the end of Alastair McIntyre's 1981 book, After Virtue, which partly inspired Dreyer as it shares his own bleak view of modern discourse. And these two authors are not alone in their pessimistic view. More and more Americans, especially political conservatives, are becoming disenchanted with modern life and culture, opting to move out to the country to homestead, live off the land, or as Kanye said, live off the grid. But for Christians, the political implications of the Benedict option should come second or third behind the primary motivator, a desire to serve God and protect the next generation from corruption. The norm so far has been to try to fit in within the larger society, isolating traditional Christians from one another and causing many of them to abandon the faith. In order to survive, traditional Christians must form intentional communities, learn their history, defend from heresies, reject much of modern culture, concentrate political efforts, and more. For our review, we will summarize each chapter and pose pertinent questions before moving on to the next chapter. So let's dive right in. Here's the introduction. Traditional values have been steadily losing for centuries. Religions are mostly giving in and Republicans are at best delaying the advance of the new age. It is clear that the modernists have had a complete victory. Christians will need to separate themselves from society to a certain extent to practice their faith. What caused this? How can the rule of St. Benedict be used to help us? There is no guarantee that the church will survive in the West. This book is written to all traditional Christians, whether they are Catholic, Orthodox, or Protestant. And let me say, Dreyer makes a point throughout the book to include examples from Catholics, Orthodox, and traditional Protestants. Um, For example, Baptists or um, High Church Anglicans. Okay, so he's casting a pretty broad net. He's intentionally casting a large net. Trying to just encompass all Christians to get them to kind of get get on the same page, maybe, at least about the need for action. Yeah, I think he's trying to inspire communities of each denomination. I don't think he's trying to create a utopia where where they all live together necessarily. There, There are some parts where he says that's okay sometimes, but I think he He's implying that it would be, you know, a Catholic community or an Orthodox community. That would make the most sense. Here's a question. Will the church actually collapse in the West? I don't think totally, uh, at least not yet. Uh, I think the there has been a, a surge in popularity when it comes to being trad, as they say. And uh, I think these hard times that we are 
no doubt, heading towards, will cause people to return to God and return to the church in some way, big or small. So it's hard for me to say, but as we'll talk about a little bit later on in the show, Christianity's been through worse. I mean, it would have to get really, really bad to even come close to some of the horrors that, that the Christian world has lived through. I agree in general that the church has been through worse, but this is a new kind of worse. There's never been anything like this. It's not an invasion of barbarians or Muslims. It's not uh, persecution from kings. It's it's very different. And it's I think it's more pernicious than any former kind of trouble. Would you say maybe even more existential? Yes, more existential because it is it's taking from all the ranks, infiltrating some might say the ranks of the church and the the layman. So I, I think there will be surges, maybe even a revival or two, like we've had many revivals throughout American history. But the long-term trends don't lie. Religion has been on the decline for a long time. The surge in non-denominational churches is just a temporary phenomenon. Most people who live Christianity don't adopt any new religion. They just become nuns, N-O-N-E-S. Yeah, that's fair. I think that's I think that's accurate. All right. So, chapter 1. Moralistic therapeutic deism or MTD has five tenets. Quote, "1. A god exists who created and orders the world and watches over human life on earth. 2. God wants people to be good, nice, and fair to each other, as taught in the Bible and by most world religions. 3. The central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about oneself. 4. God does not need to be particularly involved in one's life except when he is needed to resolve a problem. And five, good people go to heaven when they die, end quote. MTD is the religion of most Americans, especially the young across all sects. Consumerism and individualism are to blame. The flood cannot be stopped. Dreyer gives a brief history at this point of the decline of the Western Roman Empire. St. Anthony of Egypt was the first hermit. Benedict established 12 monasteries in Italy, and his twin sister, St. Scholastica, started her own. His rule was actually a milder version of an Eastern rule. It is practical. It helped Western Europe survive the fall of Rome. To live after virtue is to abandon objective moral standards, refuse to accept any religiously or culturally binding narrative originating outside oneself, repudiate memory of the past as irrelevant, and distance oneself from community as well as any unchosen social obligations. This accurately describes our modern, weak, selfish, impatient, and wishy-washy generation. Daniel, let's have a little discussion about MTD. How many religious people are actually MTD adherents, and what causes it? I think there are a lot. I I personally think I know a lot of MTD adherents, as Dreyer calls them. Uh, The pseudo-spiritual coexist types. You know, they've got that bumper sticker right on the back of their Subaru. Uh, And these people, they never do anything for their religion or beliefs that doesn't feel good. They don't make sacrifices or they have a hard time doing it. And really, the ease of modern living makes them like this. They think everything should be easy and have immediate gratification. And traditional Christianity is actually kind of the opposite of that. So they avoid it at all costs. Yeah, it's important to note MTD most of the time is not an explicit rejection of Christianity or any religion. It's more just a misunderstanding. It's mostly through ignorance, people thinking that Jesus was just a cool dude 
told people just to get along. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, okay. Read the book of John and tell me if that's the case. Watch our episode five, Atheism, and see our breakdown of religious identity in the U.S. for an even more in-depth discussion. I would be very willing to say that while the majority of Americans identify as Christian, a minority actually practice the faith. It's bad amongst all mainline Christian denominations. It's not just the Catholics or the Methodists or what have you. MTD is pathetic. It's feminine and pointless. Either be religious or don't be. Stop playing that that middle ground of the worst of both worlds. Exactly. Exactly. That's really what it is. I couldn't agree more. I have more respect for someone who's just like, no, I don't care about religion or I'm not religious. Then I do someone who's like, oh, yeah, man, Jesus was just cool. Yeah. Kind of like a hippie guy. He, he, he was down with everybody. He didn't, you know, you shouldn't judge anyone. It's so blah, you know. It's so boring. It is. It is so boring. And it, it doesn't actually make take a stand on any issue. It really defaults to whatever the majority is around them. Because it's it's cultural Christianity. Exactly. Now, chapter two. Here is the history of all the ideas that led to where we are today. Quote, 14th century, the defeat of metaphysical realism by nominalism in medieval theological debates removed the linchpin linking the transcendent and the material world. In nominalism, the meaning of objects and actions in the material world depends entirely on what man assigns it. War and plague brought the medieval system crashing down. Congratulations on saying all those words. Yeah. It was a tongue Ooh, twister. Just give me a round of applause right there. This is a very sophisticated and complicated debate, but basically nominalism is the belief that things don't have essential natures. People just give stuff identities arbitrarily, thus nominalism. Nomen means name. An apple is an apple because we call it that. Metaphysical realism is in between the extremes of nominalism and the theory of platonic forms. Watch episode 15 on the ship of Theseus thought experiment for more on this. We explicitly talk about metaphysical realism in that episode. Now, uh, what are the effects of nominalism? Basically, it causes headache, nausea, and boredom, if you dive too deep into it. (laughs) That's pretty accurate. We'll move on. (laughs) Quote, 15th century, the Renaissance dawned with a new optimistic outlook on human potential and began shifting the West's vision and social imagination from God to man, whom it saw as the measure of all things. Now, let me ask, was this shifted focus to human suffering justifiable? Did it have any good effects or bad effects? My answer to that would be, it's it's not bad to focus on the poor and sick, obviously. But don't forget about the soul in the process. Don't be so focused on the sick man's physical condition that you don't get him last rites. Come on, man. And the ironic part is that um, my avatar is St. Thomas More, who was a humanist. It's me coming back, telling y'all, don't be as humanist as I was. Maybe, from beyond the grave. But uh, as for, for my opinion on that... I think focusing on human suffering is, is, is fine, obviously. I think we have an obligation to help out our, our community and, and other people if we can, but that should not come at the, at the expense of the religious aspects and the, the more ethereal aspects of life. So we can reorganize our society to be of the most benefit to people's health and wellness and things like that. But if it comes at the cost of, as you mentioned, our soul, We may need to step back because that will cause bigger problems in the long run. Dreyer goes on to say, quote, 16th century, the Reformation broke the religious unity of Europe. In Protestant lands, it birthed an unresolvable crisis in religious authority, which over the coming centuries would cause unending schisms. And he is right about that. 
unending schisms. Yeah, for sure. Um, I would assert that Protestantism is schismatic by nature. It is good to have religious unity. It is good to have a pope. I completely agree. Uh, It's better to have unity because there's strength in numbers. And division will always cause you to fall to your enemies. Atheism, other religions, or political forces will invade and, and take advantage of those little cracks in your group. They're and, not they're not little cracks. Well, no, yeah. Obviously, if we look at Protestantism today, it's it's massive chasms between the different branches and what you might even call brands in some cases of of Christianity that have developed. And to the point where they're almost in some cases different religions. And how easy how easy can someone take advantage of those differences and play two sides against each other and topple them? I agree. Moving on, quote 17th century, the wars of religion resulted in the further discrediting of religion and the founding of the modern nation-state. The scientific revolution struck the final blow to the organic medieval model of the cosmos, replacing it with a vision of the universe as a machine. The mind-body split proclaimed by Descartes applied this to the body. Man became alienated from the natural world. Now we can ask, does religious violence discredit religion? Perhaps if that religion advocates peace and turning the other cheek, and then goes on to commit violence. However, what applies to an individual does not always apply to a group or a nation, so maybe that is a little bit of an unfair take. Religious violence is no worse than political violence, in my opinion. People will usually still support both and turn a blind eye if the conditions are right. So to me personally, I maybe used to think that. I don't think that anymore. Whatever. People are going to commit violence for any number of reasons. It doesn't necessarily discredit the actual ideas. Yeah, what people do doesn't discredit their belief system unless you can prove that they were related and that the violence was unjustified. Some may say, if God real, why do terrible sinners exist? Some might say. (laughs) Because you'd be killed. Duh. Yeah. Come on. Is science necessarily a threat to religion? I used to think so. I don't anymore. And it's really only a threat if you believe the earth is 6,000 years old. I'm sorry, science is a little bit of a threat to that idea that the earth is only that old. Seriously, though, they deal with different things, religion and science, mostly different. So far, science can't tell us what happened before the universe existed, so that's up to religion. And since you can't scientifically prove God doesn't exist or measure him if he does exist, uh, the two are really independent. Yeah, this supposed duality is mostly an aspect of attacks on fundamentalists, Mm -hmm. which we're not, of course. See our episode 5 again on atheism for a longer discussion about this question. Now, finally, is nature a big machine? Hmm. That's a good one. Maybe man is to machine as God is to nature. You know, God created nature, and it's sort of like us creating a machine. But where man's inventions are cold and dull, God's invention, nature, is, at least on Earth, warm, organic, and unique, constantly growing and changing. Some might say that what God created is inherently superior because he is a perfect being, whereas our creations are so lifeless because we are imperfect and sinful. Some may say that. I'd contend that the idea of the universe as a machine is uniquely from the Enlightenment. Factories are soul-sucking places. I would know I spend over 40 hours a week there. (laughs) Uh, I don't work in a factory. Uh, I I work in a shop, but I do visit actual factories from time to time, and I can agree. They're not made for human occupancy. Let me tell you that. Next, Dreyer dives into the 18th century. Quote, 
18th century, the Enlightenment attempted to create a philosophical framework for living in and governing society absent religious reference. Reason would be the pole star of public life, with religion, considered a burden from the Dark Ages, relegated to private life. The French and American revolutions broke with the old regimes and their hierarchies and inaugurated a democratic, egalitarian age. So is the privatization of religion, as he mentions here, a good thing? Should religion be in the public sphere? Religion can and should be in the public sphere. Unpopular opinion, but true. (laughs) The separation of church and state is not in our founding documents. I will wait while you try to find it. It derives from a letter that Thomas Jefferson wrote to somebody who himself was barely even Christian. He wrote his own Bible. This is true. He did. Many states had official religions until well after the Civil War. In fact, uh, it's our good old 14th Amendment that caused that to go away. That, that may be worth an episode sometime in the future. Oh, good idea. We'll write that down. Besides, morality and religion are fundamentally related for most people, and morality must be a part of lawmaking. Otherwise, why do laws exist? Is murder outlawed for purely utilitarian reasons? It, it just causes too much chaos? Is that all? It does, but that's not all. Yeah, that's the key word right there. Yeah, sure. Well, yeah, what if a murderer was a net positive? If murder was a net positive, you could prove that? Hmm, I'd like to just see your, your paperwork there on that, you know, your, your calculations. I'd be willing to take a look at it, but I'm not saying that I would believe it, but I just want to take a look. Just saying laws are based on morality, or at least public utility. But there are some laws that are purely based on what's right and what's wrong. That's why we dictate it. Sure. Uh, Religion, to me, is a social tool. Uh, It exists to unite people, maintain order. It belongs in the public sphere. What good would be the privatization of politics or the privatization of laws? Laws and political structures exist to govern groups of people. What good are they if anybody can pick and choose which ones they obey or believe in? So we, we have to have it there. Now, was the Age of Revolutions a good or bad thing for mankind? Uh, half and half. Watch episode 20, The American Revolutions Debate, for a more in-depth discussion on revolutions. Again, it's a banger. And, and one more thing I'll say on that is is that, yeah, I like my fancy microphone and, and my cell phone and my computer and my medicine, but we did give up a lot, you know, out of all those revolutions. You know, we did give up what I think is like the, the human ideal, which is just the the small town religious farmer with a multi-generational family living on the same plot of land that's that's what built this nation unpopular opinion anyways quote 19th century the success of the industrial revolution pulverized the agrarian way of life uprooted masses from rural areas and brought them into the cities relations among people came to be defined by money The Romantic movement rebelled against this alienation in the name of individualism and passion. Atheism and Marxist-influenced progressive social reform spread among cultural elites. Now some have said, The Industrial Revolution and its consequences have been a disaster for the human race. What do you have to say about that? (laughs) First of all, I appreciate you including Uncle Ted's uh, opening line in this. All I have to say is, the revolution, the industrial revolution was great for man's body, his age, his sore knees and back, but it was bad for his soul. Yeah, that's why a third of Americans are obese, right? <laughs> fair, fair. So maybe it wasn't so good for his body. Yeah, many would argue, many being me, uh, that atheism <laughs> and Marxism were unavoidable consequences of the industrial revolution. 
factory workers wouldn't exist and be able to organize against capital without it. Relationships wouldn't have been as defined by commercial transactions without it. It really just turned man more into a machine. Yes, just trying to get money from people to people. I agree. Is money-based living a bad thing? So maybe you're referring to the Atlas Shrugged Money speech by Francisco de Anconia. Yes, that's what I had in mind. It's a good speech. It's interesting. It puts forth an interesting idea that the only options you have are, are kill or trade. It's really it. So Ayn Rand posed the idea that, okay, most systems say just kill or take or steal or whatever in order to get what you need, the resources you need. But capitalism is the one system where people are able to trade with each other, and it makes for more peaceful living. From that perspective, it's a, it's a fair point. But life's not all about money. It's not. It's not all about just the dollar signs. It's not all about being a, a machine. So I guess it all depends on if you prefer to barter or simply kill for what you want and need, or would you rather just peacefully trade with somebody? Okay, Mr. Objectivist. That's that's somewhat fair. Uh, the love of money is the root of all evil, but money by itself cannot be immoral. It is simply a tool. And I know that Francisco directly opposes what I just said in his speech, but I'll leave it at that for now. Next up, the 20th century. Dreher goes on to say, The 20th century, the horrors of the two world wars severely damaged faith in the gods of reason and progress and in the god of Christianity. With the growth of technology and mass consumer society, People began to pay more attention to themselves and to fulfilling their individual desires. The sexual revolution exalted the desiring individual as the center of the emerging social order, deposing an enfeebled Christianity as the Ostrogoths deposed the hapless last emperor of the Western Roman Empire in the 5th century. So was the sexual revolution a disaster or an emancipation? Was it inevitable, perhaps? An inevitable disaster, I would say. A good luck finding a woman these days who isn't on the feminism spectrum. Most are relatively promiscuous or crippled by depression and anxiety, or both. Most have some kind of social justice leanings. Statistics show that Western women are generally unhappy and over-medicated, I might add. And that should tell you everything you need to know about the would-be success that was the sexual revolution. Yes, the uh, sexual revolution was a disaster, obviously. Watch episode 3, Orwell vs. Huxley, for a longer discussion on the sexual revolution. Huxley's work, Brave New World, would lead us to believe that it was in fact a disaster. That concludes his summary of every century, which I thought was very informative. But I'll end with this quote from our supreme institution, the Supreme Court of the United States. In its case, Planned Parenthood vs. Casey. Quote, At the heart of liberty is the right to define one's own concept of existence of meaning, of the universe, and of the mystery of human life. Now let me say, does each individual have the right to define the universe? No. Reality is reality. There I go, being an objectivist again. I promise I'm, I'm not. Not anymore. Reality is real. It is objective. No, I, we have the right to define the universe how we see fit. The universe must bow to our will. You know what? All right, then. You make such a great case. I believe you. I identify as... Is that uh, the heart of liberty? <laughs> This is what our founding fathers wanted. I identify as one of the top podcasts on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. And no, why stop there? I identify as the number one podcast of all time, ever. Sons of Antiquity, you and me, that's number one. I identify as that. You can't stop me. Obviously, the Supreme Court is a joke.
Moving on. Chapter 3. Dreyer gives various lessons that he learned from the Benedictine monks in Norcia when he visited there. The topics that he discusses are order, prayer, work, aestheticism, stability, community, hospitality, balance, and sanctity. This section is actually really beautiful, but it's, it's hard to summarize, so just read it for yourself. Chapter 4. Politics is a sign of the post-Christian age we live in. Trump is morally depraved, but won the evangelical vote easily, proving that the moral battle has been lost. Most battles on morality cannot be won in the public sphere. We must focus most of our energy on religious liberty, not as an end in itself, but a means to be able to live good Christian lives in our own communities. Some ways to achieve religious liberty are to get active at the state and local level. Pick the most important battles. Don't fight on stupid stuff that doesn't really matter. Prioritize the freedom of churches. Get on screen to advocate for religious liberty. Stay polite and form partnerships with non-Christians. We need to do wholesome things for their own sakes. Be social. Be a part of a community. Do things with others. Politicians can't solve everything, nor should they. That's a great point. Yeah, he, he threw a few grenades in that one. Uh, so is Trump a degenerate, or is he our Lord and Savior? He was a degenerate false hope. I mean, I'm not going to lie. There were some good things he did, but everyone had way higher expectations for him and, and way bigger hope for him than what actually materialized. And a lot of that was because of his opposition. But at the end, at the end of the day, a lot of it was because of his own failings, I think. But he was the better of two evils. Uh, we deserved him, just as we deserve all of our dear leaders, even Brandon. Yeah, we deserve worse than Brandon, to be honest. Trump seemed different, and it made people be too hopeful. But can we really be saved by a twice-divorced and non-religious billionaire? Why did, our, why did we place our hopes and dreams in that kind of a person? Especially on the, on the evangelical right. I mean, if this guy was supposed to be some sort of big hero... Shouldn't he have been a... He doesn't even go to church. Yeah, yeah exactly. Like, he, he should have been himself, more religious. He calls himself, I think, Dutch Reformed is his official denomination. It's, it means he's a kind of Calvinist. Yeah, right. Okay. Cringe. Is religious liberty the most important issue at this point? As far as the fulfillment of Benedictine communities goes, yes, it is. He makes a very big point of that. Without it, they will not be allowed to exist because of mud discrimination and... Racist, sexist, homophobic, transphobic, what have you. Now, I'll I'll disagree there slightly and say gun rights may be the most important, but religious liberty is a close second. As if anybody's going to actually defend themselves with guns. We've talked about this. We have. We have. I'm holding out hope. If we form a Benedictine community fully armed and ready, you're just Waco 2.0. I know. We'll get to that <laughs> later on in the script. <laughs> but yeah, you're right. It, it's going to be bad. That may be inevitable, though. Do conservatives put too much effort into getting the right guy elected? Maybe, but I mean, what other option really is there? Uh, third parties never win. And you know, who are you going to write in? You're going to write in Jesus? I mean, really, like, I get it. I'm frustrated too. Uh, so many people are. But the only other option is, like, not voting. And then you, at the very least, as I always say, if you vote, you have the right to complain. If you don't vote, you don't have the right to complain because you didn't do, like, the bare minimum. So when people go out and vote, they're like, okay, who am I going to vote for? Lesser two evils. It's wrong. It's not ideal. But it's what people feel like they have to do. I think his point was more we put too much effort into that in that the returns are low for the amount of effort we put in. Oh, so focus efforts on something else, more yeah. real. I can agree with that. I agree we should be doing that. Yeah, Trump was a perfect example. No one person is going to fix the entire culture. 
and if they manage to get elected by said culture, there is even less hope. Chapter 5. Christianity is dying largely because Christians don't know their own history. Hardly anyone knows the early church fathers and their writings. Since churches won't teach these things, parents must. Liturgy is vital to orthodoxy. Be ready for martyrdom. And let me say this, ignorance of church history is due to Protestantism, my very biased opinion. But as St. John Henry Newman, a former Anglican, said, to be deep in history is to cease to be Protestant. Daniel, what say you? Well, I happen to agree with that. Okay, Dan Rubin. <laughs> All right, let me let me give you a better answer there. <laughs> I can't be let, let you call me Dan Rubin. I really can't. <laughs> Ooh, that's, that hurts. That cuts deep, man. I, I've even before I was more friendly to religion in general. I just didn't really get Protestantism. I didn't like it as much uh, as, as I've told you before, and I may have even mentioned it on the show. I like my religion to be stoic and somber, and some might say boring, but that's how I like it because I feel like that is the respect that you owe a creator if there is one. You don't owe him all this wishy-washy, oh, this guy's an awesome God, you know, we won't be shaken, all that stuff. You don't owe him a rock concert. You owe it to him to take him seriously. And so I think that's why Protestantism is cringe, because it just is not serious enough to me. That's a broad stroke, but yeah, it's, it's largely right for American Protestantism. And I'll say one more thing. It plays fast and loose with Scripture, and it plays fast and loose with history, with, with like you said, 1,500 years of history. I think they would really disagree with the first part because the whole basis of it is scripture alone. Mm, but it's hard to argue with with Jesus himself when he tells Peter that he will build his church on him and the gates of hell won't won't come against it. And the church that they built was what would become the Catholic church. I mean, uh, obviously, I'm not going to solve anything, especially being, as I said, an outsider looking in. But, you know, they're going to have their arguments. They're going to have their beliefs. No one's ever going to be satisfied. It's almost not even worth talking about. People are going to believe what they're going to believe. Now moving on to chapter 6. Living an orthodox Christian life requires living in a community of like-minded people. The home should be like a monastery with a clear schedule and set priorities. God first. Cancel things that get in the way of religion, like sports that play on Sundays. Keep a hierarchy in the home, but value each member and show humility. Limit screen time and content for everyone, including adults. That's a very important point. Make sure their friends are mostly good with the same values. Too much discipline, however, makes kids rebel and hate religion. So find a balance. It is important to live close to your parish church so that uh, church isn't just on Sunday. Be ecumenical with other traditional Christians. Visit with fellow parishioners often. Don't police people in your community too harshly. Experiment and keep the stuff that works. Toss out the stuff that doesn't. Now, should Christians go out to eat and play organized sports on Sundays? Here is my soapbox, one of probably many today. Jump up there, man. Let's hear it. Absolutely not. It has become one of my pet peeves, especially, you know, Christians going out to eat on Sundays. The same people who think that Sunday should be free from labor go out to eat after church. The whole irony of it, which I've done before, most of the time begrudgingly, because nobody knows that you shouldn't be doing this in my very reasonable opinion. By doing this, you're forcing someone to work on Sunday, often at the time when most church services are going on, so you're effectively keeping them from going to church if they want to. They are missing church so that you will be less inconvenienced, instead of just making a meal for yourself or preparing ahead of time. While it would be great for our laws to forbid non-essential places from operating on Sundays, 
there's no support for that anyways, and we must start somewhere. Also, if you're not willing to work on Sundays, all the boomers will call you lazy. It's happened before. I get so many weird looks when I tell people I, I don't work on Sunday. They'd you don't like, do any work. I mean, like, actually go to work. Mm-hmm. They'd be like, well, what if you need to do something? It's like, I, it's not saving lives. It's making a product. You can yeah, you can keep it another day. Yeah, that is crazy to me that, that people really do think of those things. Like, they bring those things up in the same sentence as if those two, like, an emergency and making a stupid product that really has no bearing on anyone's life are the same. Saying that those two are the same, come on, give me a break. Especially if you're flipping burgers or something. You're working on Sundays. I've done it. You know, a burger is not as important as saving a life. So if you're a religious person, okay, fine. Yeah, you would do what you got to do on Sunday if an emergency came up. But flipping a burger is not a damn emergency. And if everybody stopped going out to eat on Sundays, they would just not open on Sundays. And then everyone could go to church. Yeah. And or, they would just open up another day. Go go on other days of the week and patronize the people you like. Oh, but I'm getting ahead of myself. <laughs> yeah, whoa, pump the brakes now. We'll get there eventually. Now, ideally, I think you should just do a homemade meal. Let the kids play outside, relax, have a day off. I mean, people are always complaining, oh, man, I'm so overworked or whatever. How about you take a day off? Have some family quality time. You're wondering why your kids are acting like brats. Maybe it's because you're not around enough. You're working all the time. How about that? I'm I'm going into hot take mode. This isn't even in the hot take show. That's that's two weeks from now. <laughs> but that's how strongly I feel about it. I like to take days off, and I'm not even Christian. Like, take a day off, guys. Let me just mention, like, you should be going to Mass on Sunday, though. That's the whole point of it, but also don't labor. Anyways. So how much screen time? Let's talk about that for a second. How much should that be allowed for children and adults? I think 30 minutes to an hour for both. But mostly you need to go outside, touch grass, as they say, read books, play cards, listen to some great music, not today's rap crap, as Evan always says. But just give your kids some culture or just teach them something or just just be in your own thoughts. Not a cell phone in sight, just living in the moment. <laughs> All right, this is Evan Soapbox Part 2 right here. He's about to no, get on is... his his uh, Uncle Ted Soapbox right here. <laughs> Luddite mode activated. No, these are very reasonable opinions. I okay. don't know why you're saying that. Go ahead. Here's what I say. Destroy all the TVs. Outlaw children having tablets. Publicly scold all parents in public who just give their kids electronics so that they'll shut up. It's not minor. It's not like a cute thing like, oh, he's just, he's just watching whatever YouTube channel. No, it's serious. Like, you're ruining your kid. Yes. Stop it. Quit it. Especially this, this at the dinner a, table. This I hate is that. A, yeah. This is a threat. <laughs> Say no more. Now, you, you, you brought up something here in the notes about being close to church. What did you mean by that? Well, what, what upset you about that? It didn't upset me. It just made me uncomfortable because I know he's right. I live 25 minutes driving from my church. The closest Catholic church to me is, I think, 10 minutes away, but... It has cringe in it, so I choose to go to one further away. And it made me uncomfortable when he was talking about how great it is to live in, like, actually near your church and have an actual community around the church. In suburban America, it is unfortunately not that common. But I think that it's a it's a place we should all aim for. Okay, so so here's a question. Should Christians form communes? Now, I'm just going to let that hang in the air, that, <laughs> that word, because it has some negative connotations. I think they should. Just make sure it's about religion. And uh, frankly, that that is a big criticism of this book and that it's too political, that it should just be about like Catholics getting together instead of conservative people getting together. 
In fact, even Alistair McIntyre criticized this book. I learned that yesterday. Really? What were his criticisms? That uh, Dreyer's thesis is not at all what he was even talking about. He had a completely different idea in mind? He thought that he was wrong to go for the hills. Really? Yeah, he thought it... I don't know. It's, if Whenever you read After Virtue, you'll realize how indecipherable the book is, to, if I'm being honest. that So therefore, his criticism was also vague and hard to understand, but he didn't like it. Well, I'm going to... I mean, everybody's got an opinion. So I'm going to side with the guy who's making a more logical argument here. Like, tell me, prove to me why Dreyer is wrong, and I'll listen. But if you're just going to say, ah, I, I didn't like it. He did write something, but it was just uh, If it's academic. indecipherable, yeah, yeah. Then, then I don't care. Take that somewhere else. When it comes to communes here, I agree. Make sure they're, they're focused on the religious aspect. Because as soon as you start getting too political— then you start ending up with actual like communes, like a bunch of hippy dippy type stuff, Woodstock, or worse, the Bolsheviks. Enough said. Okay, moving on to chapter seven. Both communism and secular liberalism are threats to religion. In fact, the latter is often more destructive. Education is the key. Classical Christian schooling is the future. Actually, nothing else will work. Christian schools cannot be secular schools with a religion class added. Education should create virtuous students above all else, not just successful and information-packed ones. Teach them scripture because most kids, even those in Christian schools, are biblically and theologically illiterate. Teach them their history, especially history before the Enlightenment. Don't send your kids to public school, because that is the center of anti-traditional beliefs and people. Most private Christian schools are bad excuses for Christian education. They teach secular values with a Christian veneer. Classical Christian education is the answer, according to Dreyer. Grammar, where they memorize facts, is for the young ones. Logic, where they learn to use reason and discern meaning, is for the middle schoolers. Rhetoric, where they focus on abstract thinking, poetry, and clear self-expression, is for the high schoolers. Classical education asks, what will this learning do to me? It uses the great book's curriculum. Do classical homeschooling if necessary. College is also difficult, but the independence allows for Benedict-style communities. Christian campus ministry can be a great buffer against secularism, which is extremely prominent in universities. They can even live in the same place with common rules. Religious universities will probably have their accreditation revoked for anti-discrimination if they don't cave to the LGBT agenda. We must be countercultural. Do conservative Christians like free market capitalism too much? Sean Hannity is worth about $200 million. That's all you need to know right there. That's terrible. I mean, the guy's, he's huge. Besides his, his TV show, he's got the, got the radio show. He's got all his sponsors. He's, you know, he's written so many books. Well, ghost written so many books. Him and Bill O'Reilly love to do that. So, the, I mean, the guy's everywhere. That makes me very uncomfortable. That guy is worth almost half a billion dollars. But I'm just jealous, apparently. So s stop making excuses for Christians who are filthy rich. I'm glad they, they worked hard to get it. But camels are still too big for the eyes of needles. Just saying. Many Christian schools are just secular schools with the religion class. He's exactly right. Catholic schools often produce very bad Catholic adults. I know of many. Uh, so do I. Is classical education better than the modern educational standards? Why was it abandoned, and what about homeschooling? A classical education 
makes kids too wise, and that makes them harder to control. Plus, standards have been lowered for minorities because my diversity. Homeschooling is a better alternative, obviously, but it depends on how the parent teaches and what resources they use and the subjects they focus on. So it's a good alternative to public school, but not the best when compared to maybe like a really good quality, private, more religious and classical education. This, frankly, deserves an episode of its own. But from what I've read, I think classical education has a lot to offer. Like Daniel said, the quality of homeschooling depends mostly on the parent doing it. That is both its biggest attribute and its biggest flaw. Now let's talk about the laissez-faire nature of college. Uh, You can just spend all your time with the good kids. Sure, that's a possibility. But is college good for most kids? Will they only associate with the good boys and girls? No. No. They can, but they probably won't. Exactly. Now, you and I had different experiences, you know, after high school. I went to trade school, you went to university, but so you can speak more to that and the impact it had. So what would you say is is the typical college experience? Are they really associating with the bad kids? Are most kids just getting in with the wrong crowd or is it overblown or what? First, but before I say that, I'd like to say I actually was surprised that he brought up this point that college can actually be a great place. Because you're not forced to do much of anything. Mm-hmm. You know, you can hang out with who you want to and do what you want to do and not do what you don't want to do. So he's got a good point. I I will compare my first three years of college with my last year of college. My first three, I went in not really religious at all, ready to party, ready to rebel. Suffered for it a little bit. No comment on any specifics there. <laughs> uh, but, you know, most of the kids who go to four-year universities are not going to be your good old Southern Baptist boys and good Catholic girls who uphold their religion. I knew so many good girls going into college, and frankly, by the end, they were they were almost always hoes and oftentimes alcoholics or drug users. Hardly, most people who go into college don't leave better than they came in, besides education, sometimes. And that's only sometimes. Now, I was, uh, I went into a technical field, so I, I was not in a liberal arts degree. And that probably helped. Yeah. As far as the indoctrination, I didn't have too much of that because my, I had a wide variety of views among my faculty because it wasn't, uh, wasn't liberal arts. There wasn't that kind of pressure. So my first three years, it was a lot of degeneracy and unhappiness. And I think most people were worse for the wear by the end of it. But my last year when I was officially Catholic, I found that they had a good youth group on campus. And it really it really made me regret my first three years because if I had been a Catholic and in that youth group the first three years, it would have been so beautiful. Like my college experience would have been exponentially better. You could have avoided all the bad and just focused on the good that college had to I offer. I could have avoided most of the bad if I had associated with those good people. And they were good people and a great priest who is now deceased. R.I.P. R.I.P., Yes. But yeah, I, it, it leaves me so much regret that I didn't join it when I was a freshman year. Well, at least it, you got that last year. In, I got know. I got that last year, but it was almost too late. I could have formed so many good friendships and grown as a person a lot more. So yeah, he's right. You can make the best out of it if you make that really conscious effort too. But the that's really going upstream. Yeah. If you go with the current or just stay where you are, even if you don't consciously fight to go upstream, 
you will become worse by going to four-year university. Does that? That's my long answer. I no, I and I totally agree. I think the state of public education and 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 the university culture has made it that way, and it's regrettable, but that's how it is. And as for my experience going to trade school, going to community college, I saw a lot less of that, and I I went for fewer hours I think like I spent less time on campus obviously I didn't live on campus I commuted and I was working at the time so I jumped more into what you might call real life I did it before a lot of people do when they go to university they've got those for the four years of, of like buffer where it's pretty real you know you get to choose your own adventure but the real life consequences, haven't fully set in. And so I think I kind of eased into that by being in the workforce earlier. But at least as far as my education was when it comes to like indoctrination, if we're talking about that or, or liberal arts stuff, I didn't really take any of those classes. So I didn't have that experience either. You know, probably wouldn't have been that bad at community college. No, not, there's not, not really. as much pressure there to conform to all that. No, yeah. but you'd be surprised how, how woke it has all become like just the the just the bureaucracy of it is so pc it's crazy and it just it uh, thankfully you know I, i'm not i don't have to deal with that anymore but back in the you know, the mid 2010s when i was in school it was already getting to be like uh i don't really like this like all these people are pretty pretty woke and I, i'm not really jiving with that so thankfully i got out but i i can't even imagine how bad it is now and I don't even want to think about what it's like at universities, you know, like actual proper universities. Yeah, so just, thankfully I dodged that bullet. Keep in mind, I'm not going to say where I went, but I went to a very, I went to university in a very conservative state. So yeah, so it was it like, it been, was a tempered experience compared to the average four-year university. You're right. If you'd gone to, uh, you know, Berkeley or something, oh gosh, or NYU, any, any of these Ivy Leagues either, you know, oh gosh, I don't even want to think about it. Then don't think about it. I won't. I'm Let's just going on. to move on. I'm going to identify as someone who doesn't know about those horrible, awful things. Let's move on to chapter eight. Dreyer says that physical labor is good, and he's right. Vocation means a calling, not just a career. Don't make work an idol, though. Many professions and employers will become off-limits to those who don't outwardly agree to the progressive agenda. He was talking like wedding planners, you know, like like bake that cake yes. kind of situations. I see, I see. It's good that he included that. Be prudent, though, he says. If it doesn't require active consent, perhaps settle for not voicing opposition. But if it's only vocal opposition or sin, then, of course, choose holiness and face the consequences. Be entrepreneurial. Patronize Christian goods and services, especially fellow parishioners. Employ parishioners, too, and support small businesses. Enter the trades and be prepared to live in the middle of nowhere. You will likely be poorer and have lower status, but think of what you will gain. I really like this section. I agree that we should form an alternative economy and only patronize fellow good Christians, even better, Catholics. Maybe it's time to stop buying from chains and all these corporations that hate us and what we stand for. Maybe, you know. If they hate you, I don't know why you'd give them your money if you have other options. Yeah, I, I totally support the trad economy. We need to cancel the left like they have tried to cancel us. It's pretty simple. Just stop giving money to people who hate you. Easy. <laughs> Except the tax man. You go to jail for that. Uh, yeah. <laughs> chapter 9. 
Traditional Christian teaching on sex is heresy to modernity. We must embrace it or cease to be Christian, however. Christianity is an incarnational religion. Bodies matter. The sexual revolution was a disaster for Christendom. Christianity liberates society from exploitation and addiction. Can't be understated. Sex is a gift and it must be rightly ordered. And by rightly ordered, we mean one man and one woman married to each other. Divorce hurts the concept of marriage, but gay marriage kills complementarity. Transgenderism denies reality, true. Gay marriage became accepted because most straights see sex as primarily a vehicle for personal pleasure and self-expression. Those who accept the modern conception of sex will reject Christianity by the next generation. True. Don't water down this teaching to try to increase numbers in your church. Teach the young and older alike about the goodness of sex and the body. If you don't, they will reject the faith and become hedonists. Don't use moralistic maxims. Teach your kids extensively about the topic. Support single people in your parish. Even support the gay people who are trying to be celibate. Fight porn aggressively because almost everyone watches it and they think it's okay. It's true. Let me ask this. How much has the sexual revolution contributed to the fall of religion? My answer would be about half. The other half is just raw consumerism. Well, the sexual revolution just makes sex a consumer product. There you go. It fits right hand in hand. Capitalism. I think it's largely to blame as well. So we can move on. <laughs> it's, it's a contributing factor. For sure. Why was gay marriage accepted so quickly? In fact, less than a decade. You know, if I can remember correctly, in the 90s, Bill Clinton signed the Defense of Marriage Act with a bipartisan Congress. Wow, how times have yeah. changed. And then in the early 2010s, just a decade and a half later, it is mandated that every state has to accept gay marriage by the by the lovely Supreme Court, the, the fountain of wisdom. And that was under Barack Obama when that happened, right? Now, it was the Supreme Court, but yes, it was when he was president. So why is it that it was accepted so quickly? And it was only a decade and a half to completely go, like to completely change the landscape on this topic. You're right. It was extremely fast. And, and I'll tell you my my thinking here. From a legal standpoint, it is a victimless crime. Yet few at the time realized that groups such as the LGBT community are seemingly incapable of living and let live. They don't wish to coexist, no matter what their bumper stickers say, as we previously thought. So many on the right underestimated their tenacity, and the same goes with Islam and minorities, but that's another topic for another day. Plus, it became a convenient way to divide people and gain money and power so multinational corporations, politicians, big tech, Hollywood, the usual suspects... They jumped on the bandwagon and used their influence to sway public opinion with insane amounts of propaganda, and most importantly here, exposure therapy. You expose people enough to it, it just normalizes it. There you go. Very true. Looking at you, Glee. Yeah, yeah, they are a big part of it. It's incredible, like I said, how quickly gay marriage went from like 10% support to a majority of Americans, and not many. It's not like just the older generations died off and made it to where the younger took over. It was literally people changing their minds midlife. It shows how far our culture has already gone. Here's another hot take. Contraceptive sex is the same as gay sex. Changed my mind. From a certain certain limited perspective, sure. You could maybe make that case, but in general, disagree on they're, that one. They're both sterile. Yeah, I guess so I guess the same as rubbing one out, right? Yeah. So it's all gay to you. Everything's just gay. Yep. Uh, I, 
you know, I already used that clip of Kurt Cobain in the, in the hot takes. I can't use it again. But uh, just for fun, let me let me beckon to your mind the image of cringy non-denominational churches with bad rock concerts. You know exactly what I'm talking about. I do. And as the great Hank Hill said, you're not making Christianity better. You're just making rock and roll worse. Well, I can't do better than that, so we'll move on. <laughs> and uh, does the homosexual have a place in good churches? Yes, I think so. Again, outside looking in, all people have a place in the church, since we are all God's children, according to Christianity. And we are all sinners. However, acceptance in the church is conditional. If you aren't recognizing your sinful behavior, seeking forgiveness for it, actively working to better yourself, you don't really have a place in the church. You don't have a leg to stand on, no matter which sins you happen to be committing. If you willfully go back to it again, and you're not sorry, and you don't do the steps required to gain forgiveness, well, you're out of luck. I could have said it better myself. Finally... This is just me talking here. Porn is terrible. Stop it. Get some help. It's not cute. It's not some minor vice that doesn't matter. Every time you watch porn, you're a pathetic loser. Just keep that in mind. And that is what Pamela Anderson said too. So mm. she said that all the dudes who watch her are losers. <laughs> fair enough. Fair enough. They are. You know, Pamela Anderson, I look to her for all of yes. my earthly wisdom. So I respect that for sure. So I agree, especially when it comes to the youth. You really got to watch out for the youth. Delay their exposure to that as long as humanly possible. But I like what was mentioned earlier about teaching kids about sex, when age appropriate, of course, because there are two extremes. <laughs> yeah. See our last Hot Takes episode. Yeah, go back, go and watch that one <laughs> to learn more about queer kindergartners. Anyway, there are two extremes. There's the over-sexualizing of kids, as Evan just mentioned in our other Hot Takes episode, and never teaching them anything about sex and or making them think that it's bad or wrong or gross. Both extremes are terrible and can do lifelong damage to kids. So it's your job as a parent to find that happy medium where you can explain how awesome sex is, but stress that it has a certain time and a place that will lead to best results. Porn is not a solution or a replacement for the real deal. Does not lead to best results that we can be sure of. So let's move on to chapter 10 of the book. Many of us instinctively reach for our phones when we get bored momentarily. I do it. Evan does it. We all do it. Technology is a continuation of the idea that mankind can master and possess nature, including bodies, as if they're all just machines that we can be overlords of. We use technology to define reality and morality, and this is why the vast majority of Americans are cool with IVF, and I know Evan's got got an issue with it. So let's talk about that. I got lots of issues. <laughs> that we can be sure of. The internet has been revolutionary in redefining how we order our lives and attention. We must take intentional time to fast from technology to contemplate and love God. And as a quick point, many based admins for religious Facebook pages that we follow on the Facebook page, which you should go follow right now, they fasted from tech during Lent and actually enjoyed it. The results are in. They thought it was great. It was refreshing. It was almost like being a real human being. Imagine that. Being away from technology actually made them feel better. So take smartphones away from yourself for a time and from the kids and try to keep them from being uh, around kids who are obsessed with technology. 
don't allow or encourage technology at church. Big no. I that is just so cringe. Just get that out of here, please. If you're gonna go to church with a with a tablet, don't go to church. If you just can't be in there for like an hour without a tablet, you you need to rework things. I'll say that. <laughs> this is uh, me hearkening back to earlier. I, this is a threat. Next time I see it, I'm coming with a hammer. Nice. Perform some manual labor. Resist the idea of progress. Usually, technological progress is unconnected or in opposition to real, lasting progress in your life, spirituality, etc. Liberal secularism is our greatest danger, not Islam or left-wing politics. Hot Some take. may disagree. Yeah. Hot take. <laughs> they're, so. they're probably neck and neck right there. I'm not sure who's eking out of the lead, but they're, they're up there for sure as threats. So is IVF okay, and why do most people support it? I left my spot on the, on the notes blank because, honestly, it's, I, I don't really have an opinion on it. I, sure, there are unintended consequences, and people on the right who have been called conspiracy theorists, you know, for thinking that pedo acceptance was, was like next in line after gay acceptance. They got proven right. Okay, fine. All right. But this one may be an example of that. It may not be. So people say, oh, IVF, bad. But then they say, oh, next thing you know, you're going to be growing custom babies. And it's going to be like you mentioned earlier in Brave New World where you're just making bottled babies. <sighs> I, it, that is a possible future. I can see through into the black mirror, and I, I can tell that that is a possible future. Does supporting IVF and being okay with it now mean that I'm supporting that future? I don't know. But I feel so bad for people who can't have kids, you know, or who, who are having trouble having kids. You know, I have known people like that and who have, who have tried things like this. So I hesitate to be like, no, this is bad. But I am curious why you say it is wrong or why the church says it's wrong. It's the same thing as the same reason as contraception. It's not the natural act to produce children. That's the reason. But even if it uses natural sperm or natural egg. I mean, don't you think that's how every baby is made? Like you you don't have artificial sperm. No, but by natural. uh, Yeah, of course you don't have (laughs) artificial sperm. One day I'm sure they will. But I mean, like yours... It has to be in the natural act. That's the point. So it has to be sex. It has to be penetration in order for it to be right. Yeah. I understand where that's coming from. But like that, before the modern age, that was the only act that could lead to that. Now we do have technology that can still allow people to have a child. It goes know? against the natural law. And that means it goes against God's law. To, to have, to do any kind of reproduction outside of the sexual act the natural sexual sexual act or to limit or hinder reproduction in the natural sexual act is in contraception that is all contrary to natural law it goes against the whole purpose of the act yes of course which is to reproduce but wouldn't you say that other methods that are condoned by the church of birth control let's say should be not allowed as well rhythm method or, or however it's still going along with nature it's not going in con it's not in competition with nature it's using nature to to maybe delay children if that is what's necessary hmm i don't know see this is see, the this kind is, of thing that's like it's such a gray area I, see, to this, me. this is why most people support it and i think in the book he said over 90 percent of americans support IVF, mm-hmm. and i believe it because they accept contraception 
if you accept contraception, then IVF is like definitely a support. Oh, of course. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Uh, that's another topic for another day. I yeah. think. I mean, I hate to get bogged down in that, especially yeah. when I honestly don't really care. <laughs> I mean, it's not a hot button issue for me specifically. When should kids get phones and maybe even smartphones? And let me ask the most important question. Should TVs be in churches? Well, if you're going to take a hammer to these tablets in, in churches, I would hate to see what you're going to do to TVs. So, I mean, just out of fear for my safety, I'm going to say <laughs> no, no TVs anywhere within a mile radius of a church. Jeez. And let alone a kid with a smartphone. Well, I wouldn't kid do better it. be wearing a helmet, you know? <laughs> oh, I'm not going to smash it in when it's right in front of his face. I take it first. Oh, okay. I Come mean, on. no, I don't. Sa- safety first. <laughs> Fair enough. Okay, fair enough. You're looking out for the safety of the kid. That's fine. And, and I think that TVs that I've seen in churches have only been, that I've seen, used to display lyrics for the songs. Literally just pick up a book. You sing the same, I, like, I 500 songs. And you can less. see it closer because, like, the, the TV is literally, like, from the farthest point in the pews, it's, like, 50 feet away. And your book is right here. You know, if you can't see it, get some glasses. If you're blind, you don't need a TV. So there's really no no situation where you would absolutely need to have a TV in the church. Just sing the the good the good songs that you've picked out, put them in a book, and literally just say or just have a sign that says this one's going to be three thirty one. There it's you go. Easy. easy, easy. Or do what I do and just don't sing. Yeah, that's what like <laughs> when you go to Catholic churches. I mean, like two thirds of people don't sing. Like three quarters of the men don't sing. There you go. <laughs> okay, and. We already reiterated this, but physical labor is beautiful. We love it. It is. We do it on a daily basis, getting paid to do it. And we do it outside of work. So it's just fun. It's just good. And finally, should we prefer Muslims over liberals, as Dreyer says? I respect them more. For sure, I respect them more. And I would hesitate to say I would would prefer to live under their rule, given the choice, because at least the Muslim world can feed its citizens. Communists can't. So I hesitate to live under them. But but he's not talking about, he wasn't talking about communism. He said liberal secularism, which means same like... Same thing. That's what it leads to. Well, you could argue that, but I mean, liberal secularism could just be like some version of capitalism without God. Mm. Liberalism, you know, we talked about this in episode 10. Check it out. But... Uh, liberalism is just kind of the idea that government shouldn't dictate personal behavior. Which I generally believe. However, I know where a lot of that can, can go to. It's very easy to make that jump from, from that to, to something more sinister. Islam is already pretty sinister. So it's the devil you do know versus the one you don't. So I would rather take my chances with the Muslims, who I respect, and, you know— who me being a man, I would, I got a pretty good chance of, uh, of uh, having a pretty high status in that society. Being a being a white male in a in, this, in the woke liberal utopia, I ain't got a chance. So I'm gonna have to pick the uh, our Muslim brothers. Allahu yeah, Akbar. I, Religion of peace. <laughs> I hate to agree, but yeah, I, I think he's right that it's we can just pay the the demi tax for being Christian and just move on with our lives. Probably. Get pushed out of professions. And we're already going to get pushed out of professions anyway. With Anyway, so... Um, there you go. Yeah. No, so it doesn't no, even seem that bad now. No, no corporation's going to hire you in any way. 
so at, at some point. Yeah, and then if you but if you live in the Muslim utopia, you, if you just don't like them, if they're not going to hire you, you can just blow them up, right? <laughs> Behead them. Yeah, just do whatever you want. We'll uh, we'll finish up with the conclusion of this book. The Benedict option should not be for the despairing and afraid, despite what we may have caused by this episode, cause you to be desperate and afraid. <laughs> it must be done out of love. The Norcia Monastery was destroyed by an earthquake in 2016 after he visited. No place is safe from the world's catastrophes, but if we head for the hills like the monks did, we may survive. He was trying to make a whole analogy out of it, because he, he visited this original monastery of St. Benedict, and and like after he left it, it was destroyed by an earthquake, but they they felt the tremors and got out in time and were hanging out somewhere else, so they survived. Oh, okay. That I didn't realize. Analogy. But they couldn't go back because it was all destroyed. The first earthquake just damaged it, so they went ahead and left, didn't take their chances, and then a second, third earthquake came, and it just destroyed it. Oh. So that's he was like making the analogy, like, yeah, the church may crumble, but we can get out in time and maybe keep it going. Ah, I like it was kind that. of it was a really good ending. I thought it was clever. So let's talk about the originator of all of this talk, this whole philosophy, and the rule of Saint Benedict. The rule of Saint Benedict is a rule for cenobitic monks, aka monks who live together under a rule and an abbot. It was written by Saint Benedict of Nursia, or modern day Norcia, Italy, in the early five hundreds. It is still used by the Benedictines, and alterations of the rule are used in the various offshoots of the Benedictines, such as the Cistercians and the Trappists. Are they in the trap house? Are they trapping all day? It is, it is a trap house if your trap house has no noise whatsoever. Oh, They're, I've never heard of a trap house that was like dead quiet. So. so maybe not a trap house. Maybe not. The essential values of a Benedictine monk are stability, conversion, and obedience. Obedience is important for many reasons, but its chief consequence is humility. Above all, humility is what St. Benedict demands, for pride is the worst sin. An abbot is in charge of the monastery and all the monks. While monks do have some rights, obedience to the abbot is of utmost importance. Speaking should be kept to a minimum, no superfluous words. The tongue leads to more sin than any other bodily member. And here's a quote for you. We absolutely condemn in all places any vulgarity and gossip and talk leading to laughter. A little excessive. I'm not sure I could jive with that, but uh, hey, you do you, fam. Yeah, that, that's kind of, it gets kind of a bad rap for that quote, but I thought I'd include it. Every day for these monks is strictly ordered. They must wake up early to start the divine office, which exists today in an altered form. This is the setup of group prayers you do daily. In the original rule, this happened about every three hours, eight times a day. So you're waking up in the middle of the night to do this. And it's, you know, it's every third hour, so 3, 6, 9, 12, etc. So you're only just taking little naps, basically, in between your prayers. At nighttime, and you work during the day. I'll mm -hmm. get to that. All 150 psalms are read at some point during the week. The rest of the day is regimented into manual labor, reading, and silent time. The motto of the order is Ora et Labora, or Pray and Work. Work is a vital part of the Benedictine experience. It is a virtue unto itself. Monks aren't allowed to be idle. You know what they say about idle hands. There are various other regulations about eating. You know, you must be silent and quantities are limited. Discipline. You must, uh, there's scolding, corporal punishment, and excommunication as options under certain circumstances. Yeah, you can be beat in these places, so watch out. And rules on visitors. 
they are allowed and will be treated hospitably, and there are other topics. It is a short book that I enjoyed reading. You may find the rule to be harsh, but remember that it was an easier version of an earlier rule from the East. It is important to have discipline in one's life. As Jocko says, and St. Benedict would agree with, discipline equals freedom. Here's what St. Benedict says. The rule is meant to, quote, establish a school for the Lord's service. In drawing up its regulations, we hope to set down nothing harsh, nothing burdensome. The good of all concerned, however, may prompt us to a little strictness in order to amend faults and to safeguard love. Do not be daunted immediately by fear and run away from the road that leads to salvation. Now let's move on to the author. Who is Rod Dreher? Rod Dreher is the senior editor at the American Conservative. He has written a lot of books, most notably The Benedict Option, but also one on how conservatives should be a little bit more crunchy granola, and another one about how great Dante's comedy is. Now, what did he mean by the crunchy granola comment? Like, conservatives should be more about helping the poor and, like, eating, like, buying organic, fair trade kind of stuff. And Interesting. And he loves the Divine Comedy, something that we share. He lives in Louisiana with his family. In my opinion, he would best be described as a paleoconservative. And he, he has some hot takes on social issues, uh, so you could check those out in your spare time. Now let me ask you, dear listener, if you don't know, what religion is Rod Dreher? And what do you think? What would you think from what we've said so far? Take a wild guess as to what his origins are. You know, whenever I read it, I just assumed that he was going to be a Catholic, right? Because I'm agreeing with, like, everything. You know, yeah, right saying, on. Yeah, man, this guy's killing it. But then he started, there were some red flags when he started mentioning orthodoxy in, like, his church. So I looked into it. He was raised a Methodist, but he converted to Catholicism in the 1990s. In 2006, he officially converted to Eastern Orthodoxy after the sex abuse scandal. This is what he is today. I find it surprising that an Orthodox man would write a book based on one of the central figures of Western Christianity. But nonetheless, he did a good job, and he should return to the real church. That's all. Hey, real recognize real. So even though he's Orthodox, he reached across the aisle to get props where they're due, and they're due to St. Benedict, man. Let's get into our assessments of the work and of the Benedict Option as an idea. The Benedict Option is something we have referenced in most of our previous 24 episodes, and I'm really glad we finally got to review it and do it justice. I think we did. As the old saying goes, the proof is in the pudding. The original Benedictine monks helped keep Christian traditions alive when Rome fell, and I believe that something similar can happen again. It seems like a reliable plan, and keep in mind that the Christian world has been through darker times than these. Dreyer correctly identifies both the problem and the solution. The problem is that progressive movements have not truly emancipated the people, but have instead enslaved them to their passions, their wealth, their corporate overlords, their entertainment, and some might say, the devil himself. The solution, get the hell out. We are surrounded by evil, and we can't expect to resist it while living right in the middle of it. However, I feel the need to stress this point. Anyone who plans on doing something like this, whether it be simple homesteading, forming a Christian community, or literally establishing their own monastery in the middle of nowhere, these actions will come with serious sacrifices. You will be more isolated from family and friends who can't or won't move with you. You will have to become more self-sufficient and more self-disciplined. You will have to forego many modern conveniences in order to create the trad economy that so many conservatives and traditionalists want. And unless you gather together in some serious numbers, 
I'm talking thousands, if not tens of thousands, the chances that you will be involved in another Waco or Ruby Ridge or Bundy Ranch increase dramatically. St. Benedict didn't have to worry about thermal surveillance or drone strikes or no-knock raids or assault vehicles rolling up on his property or having bank accounts frozen and air travel privileges revoked, which lends credit to Evan's point from earlier that maybe things are different this time. You might say I'm exaggerating, but American citizens have been the target of all those things and more. Any form of resistance, even the proverbial going galt, will likely be seen as a threat. We have to be ready to deal with that. I will leave you with two quotes, which sum up my opinion on the matter. First, Sivis pacem parabellum. If you want peace, prepare for war. That's a quote from Publius Renatus. And the second quote is this. AK on my nightstand, right next to that Bible. Noted poet, Dwayne Carter Jr. Well spoken. It's an excellent book and deserves all the hype. Read it for yourself, you, you won't regret it. I've already said a lot, so I think I'll just let us move on for now. Come on now, step on down from that soapbox. Come on, let's Yeah, it's let's exhausting. It's exhausting up there above all the plebs. <laughs> so what are our takeaways? Even though the Benedict Option is a newer book, it tackles an age-old idea. Sometimes the only ap- option you have left is to retreat and regroup. Feminism, the sexual revolution, the industrial revolution, the enlightenment, the Protestant reformation, the progressive movement as a whole, political strife, and the rise of the digital era have all contributed to the decline of Christianity in the West. St. Benedict was a great guy who had way more discipline and faith than many of us today. We should strive to emulate him. If you're Catholic, he's a saint, so yeah, that's obvious. You should emulate him. Now time for our lingering questions. Does Evan consider the Benedict option to be an exception to his general rule that 21st century books suck? Let me clarify. Okay, I think modern books in any given time suck. It's just we happen to live in the 21st century. We don't have the hindsight yet to know which books are going to be great and which ones are just going to be tossed into the dustbin of history. We don't know. Whereas previous centuries, the books that have lasted are the good ones for the most part, or just the notably influential ones like the Communist Manifesto somehow. The influential and the great books survive. But I think this this one may survive. It depends on how history goes. But this may be one that gets remembered in certain circles, at least. So yes, I, I do think it goes against that rule. Well, only time will tell. But I hope so. Yep. Now, will conservative Christians actually be able to organize like the left does? It's a big problem. It is. And... I don't know that they will. I obviously hope that they will. And maybe, just maybe, not trying to get my hopes up, knock on wood, do whatever you got to do, but maybe we're starting to see a change. They mm. can't even boycott one company effectively. But if you looked into what happened with Daily Wire creating their own razor company, their own shaving company to compete with Harry's, they're trying to send a message. They're trying to say, hey, Guys on our side, you need to start making your own economy. You need to start making your own products because they're going to hold us hostage and prevent us from having access to to products, to services, unless we comply with their woke agenda. So that is one small example, admittedly, but I'm hoping it is part of a larger trend. I have no other option but to like hope for the best right here because it does look so dire. So I have to hope and think that, yes, we will be able to combat this. We will be able to to make our own 
things and services and organize like they can and fight back. And with Elon Musk buying Twitter, that is just another piece of the puzzle, I think. I'm hoping. Yeah, keep hoping. We end today with an excerpt from a poem that was written long ago, yet it can easily be applied to modern America. Imagine the sign over over the doors you sail into New York City or whatever you're doing. Real OGs will recognize the reference. I am the way into the city of woe. I am the way to a forsaken people. I am the way into eternal sorrow. Sacred justice moved my architect. I was raised here by divine omnipotence, primordial love and ultimate intellect. Only these elements time cannot wear were made before me and beyond time will stand. Abandon all hope, ye who enter here. That's all for today's show. Make sure to like, subscribe, and leave your comments. Join us again next time for even more Ancient Wisdom.